Hello and welcome back. We are sitting in the car today. I'm here with Luke, one of the people I've spoken about and on on the podcast a gazillion times now. You've probably heard of him um, on almost every episode I've been on. Uh, He's one of my closest friends. He worked with me for now the past two years and sadly he's had to move on to a new role in a new position at another school which has been actually very fortunate in a lot of a lot of ways. He's got a bit of a pay bump and then also like a bit more responsibility in some sense. Um, and it's been really good for his family. Um, so I just wanted to thank him for coming on today and um, being here. I have a whole heap of different topics I want to discuss today. Um, the first one that kind of came to my mind, which I, I woke up with in my head this morning, was the fact that you're now moving on to this new space and when I first met you we were both coming into a whole new work environment and to me moving into a work environment is like pretty intimidating and you just have this air of confidence and calmness about moving into a work environment that I think is quite unique Um, and I just want to kind of pick your brains a little bit about what gives you that ability to be so calm and present and just uh, it's almost like a focus in some sense but you, you kind of care and you don't mm. care at the same time so yeah maybe you can just talk to that a little bit brother it's good to be here <laughs> i love you man i'm glad that we get to finally do this we've spoken about doing it for so long oh yeah for yeah sure. um man awesome question i really feel like when i first started teaching which was my first year teaching was 2014 yeah. so it's a fair while ago now um i was so nervous yeah i was petrified i had no confidence and then i think just being chucked in the deep end like moving mm. to brisbane i um i was struggling to get a job in brisbane because i grew up in rockhampton because it was halfway through the year so I actually just put down a Brisbane address on my resume because I didn't think people were hiring me because they were like, as if this guy's going to move 700k yeah, for like for a, a for a job for a term because wow. they're all contracts. Yeah. They were mid year, um, and I remember like getting a call from a school to come interview like tomorrow. I was like, yeah, no worries, easy, <laughs> but <laughs> not really that easy. <laughs> Jump in the car, like drive overnight. And then they called me and they were like, yes, yeah, sweet. The job's yours. And I was stoked. And then they called me back like two days later and were like, actually, can you start on Monday? God. And I was what like, day is it? this was uh, like Friday. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, no worries. That'd be great. Easy. And so I literally just threw everything that could fit into my car, into my car. And if it didn't fit in my car, I threw it in the bin. Holy dooly. Drove to Brisbane. Single? Yep. 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 Stayed with a friend. Um, spoiler, that friend. Yeah. We, yeah. We, yeah. We had more happen after that. But I literally found a place to live in that weekend started the job on Monday and I think I didn't even have a chance to think about how stressful the job would be because everything else was like way more stressful yeah and I think that really like sort of set the tone of like reflecting on that like oh wow okay yeah like I can do this like I mean if I could do that to like get this job Mm. and so I feel like having that chaotic experience to 
like start a new job like all other jobs just seem like a breeze compared to that yes I guess so like having that and then changing schools a few times and yeah I really I do feel far more confident in myself from when I first started and it is crazy and I feel calm but I don't I'm not 100% sure like where that's come from I don't know if it's just experience or I think it's just meaningful relationships that you build because they're like the true like sign of you are actually making an impact and doing doing well I guess it's like Mm, like those around you enjoy your presence yeah and like knowing how awesome our relationship is it's like okay like that means that I'm having an impact where I am because our relationship is good so I guess like having those outside factors like reinforcing the confidence indicators and yeah yeah that makes sense yeah Yeah. I I guess what you're also pointing to there because like I can kind of see you doing a similar pattern moving into this next job um, is don't worry about what you have to do until you're doing it like yeah. that that's like a simple yeah. key and in, in that principle yeah. like until you're actually having to do whatever that thing is because otherwise it hurts you twice yeah so if you're not it's, if you've got something that you need to do but it's in the future obviously some things might require some kind of planning and in some sense in Luke's story there where he had to get a new job and move from Rockhampton to a whole new place to do this job he had to write a resume he had to find the job he had to apply for the job to make that all happen that's planning but he wasn't worried about can I do the job until he was at the job mm. and that's oh, that's so crazy because you kind of learnt that through fire yes and I, I really had this thought in my head as you were saying it I think sometimes, in some sense, sport teaches people that similar kind of adaptability as well. Um, I've been thinking about in... Uh, like, I've been writing in my chapter the, the importance of sport on building some kind of social resilience for people and just how when you ever want to progress in something in life and you want to take a next step forward into something bigger beyond yourself you'll inevitably always have to start from the bottom and that's just that's just the process of it and if if you're constant constantly worried about starting from the bottom and grinding your way up you'll never succeed at it because you're just the pressure will cripple you you have to just be accepting of where you are right now take it as it comes and just do what you have to do then and there yeah and like oh that's such a cool story that move yeah um yeah do you have any other one other thing i just thought i remember i i don't honestly don't know where the advice came from but I remember a helpful thing. I guess it, it kind of like, it's a bit anxiety yeah. like related is in two weeks from now, mm. will this still be a problem? Mm. And when you're starting a new job and then you're two weeks into it, it's like, well, no, like you've already started it now. Like yeah. you've done the hard part now. So like why worry about something that inevitably is just, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And I know that's like easy to say and hard to do, but looking at it from that perspective definitely helped. And I guess it's somewhat of an arrogant way to look at it too, but like you and I know that there are some pretty bad teachers out there. Mm. And if they've managed to get through it, then I'm sure I can get through it 
too. So, like, that I guess that sounds arrogant, but it's also a bit of a coping mechanism of, like, inevitably it's going to come, yeah. and I'm not going to be the worst person that's ever done it. Yeah. So, like, the sky's the limit, I guess. That's a really good point. Yeah, it's interesting you can have role models above and below you in some sense (laughs) (laughs) so not many people discuss that very often but yeah you can like using the people who in some sense might be not doing as good a job as you can also give you like a sense of fulfillment in in what you're already doing you're like oh at least I've like I've got this under wraps and and then I've got more more room to think about what I can do moving forward oh that's that's a cool little insight the other thing, like, now that we're kind of talking about teaching in some sense, we were at a meeting towards the end of the year and a couple of people had come back to just give back some feedback on what they kind of learnt through this professional development some other governing body had delivered. And what kind of stuck with both Luke and I, and it just it sunk into my head for a fair while, they were pushing this idea of equity now over excellence and so what they're trying to fundamentally do uh, in some sense like this i guess this governing body can't really talk for all scenarios but we're trying to make everything absolutely accessible for everyone and that is a really 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 good noble cause however and they literally said this they want to give up excellence so the pursuing of like the highest and greatest success you could possibly go for to ensure everyone can just try and fit into the middle yeah which is like such a scary topic or or not topic topic's probably the wrong word a a scary context to set for society to me because like the only way we push things forwards is by by people excelling and inevitably you're always going to have people drop out of the bottom like no matter how hard you push someone some people just don't want your help mm-hmm. and so you're going to find that along the way and it is important to help the people that do want the help and some people might not have the quite the same amount of opportunities as other people but to me, that means there needs to be like another space that we can facilitate for them where funds can go to. And so I actually kind of like started having um, a bit of investigation into where, why isn't there another place? Like, for instance, in my head, I was like, flexi schools and special schools, they're there for a reason, right? And they're there for quite extreme cases. But why isn't there a middle middle ground school between mainstream and a special school where you've got this place where kids might not actually be like really 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 intellectually struggling or perhaps there might not be the extreme case of like kids being a real burden on society by just being menaces there's this place in the middle where you might have like kids who have severe adhd or maybe they have like autism but they they can they they wouldn't socially quite fit in with the extreme cases but they can't they're still struggling in the mainstream cases i'm sure there's like a place there or a niche for a business to come in and create a space for them um i feel like i'm almost pushing segregation in some sense but <laughs> like for those people to truly strive they need they need this i guess grouped think together where they can they can help each other grow with the right support instead you've now got teachers being pushed 
to spread themselves amongst a very large group of diversity, which we already do in some sense. But even further, and the mountain of paperwork that is continually coming in each year that is now growing and growing to cater for these kids. But it's now becoming a system in which the school is incentivized to... uh, Not the word. Incentivized to diagnose the kids with these issues in order to gain funding from the government to accommodate them. But instead, you have this issue where now everyone's getting diagnosed with an issue, or not everyone, but a lot larger population than probably needs it. And it's some kids that could just maybe have maybe some more tough love, and that would grow them into like the human they they could become. They have this crux that they are now allowed to lean onto, and you can't push them any further because now they've got this diagnosis that says, "I have a particular learning disability," and they they might they might actually have this problem but they might not have it to the severity that they believe in themselves they have now and now that they believe they have something wrong with them it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that just keeps building on itself and those kids really struggle to move forward past that and at least in my eyes um so i guess i just wanted to kind of get your views on this equity over excellence thing and kind of hash out this topic yeah I feel like it was a pretty good summary. <laughs> like, I was trying to think, maybe equity over excellence. I can't believe I mean these words will come out of my mouth, but I feel like there is a place for that in some education settings, like really low-level primary school, like yeah. prep, year one, like sport, music, mm. like at that sort of level what even is excellence like kids can't progress anywhere so so at that point like should we be but I guess it's also how you execute that um that you shouldn't shut down the kids who are excellent but you should be providing opportunities where excellence isn't the goal equity is the goal and so it's not mutually exclusive. It's like you can have a kid be excellent at something that everyone can do. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, 100%. Like, I guess what the issue we kind of see in a sport context is, like, kids, in my eyes, don't really want to play a sport if there's no objective in the sense of how do you win the game? Like, mm. if you can't win yeah. the game, then why do we play the game? Primary school do do that though like teaching primary school the the young kids will play a game for the sake of playing a game there must be i think there is an age at where that does turn yeah that that that's actually a really good point so maybe i can't remember what the uh psychological um philosophical no i can't think of the word the, the psychologist that came up with the stages of learning. What, what was that? Oh, Who, um, do you know it off the top of your head? Oh. Mm, it's on the tip of my tongue. But he effectively said, like, at, at certain levels of development, a child will express these certain attributes. Yeah. Um, oh, uni lectures would be... Okay. Yeah, screaming at us. <laughs> oh, can't you remember this? But... Blooms? Oh. Is it not blooms? Mm. No. Oh, you're close. But that's that's, that's the like, cognitive know, yeah, cognitive yeah. thinking. But very close. Um, but anyway, 
perhaps children need a certain amount of time where they just do get to explore the world through like fun guided guided by like some more knowledgeable others and and nothing else matters and they just need to kind of work out within themselves what is fun what isn't it's interesting that we have this arbitrary line as a society where we're like all right from here on out things start getting serious Mm. and this is i guess what's tough because some kids aren't ready for it to get serious yet and so how do they navigate that and those those kids have to just be pushed into the um the fire i guess and hopefully they come out good yeah um but so we do in some sense what you're saying there like equity is important particularly in primary school um to ensure that everyone is just almost enjoying their experience there like you if you have kids hating their experience at school from primary school it's not going to change they're probably just going to be stuck in hating that experience in high school yeah we also kind of had that mindset when we were teaching as well like you're going to have a far better experience as the teacher if the kids enjoy being in your class and they'll probably learn more in your class if they like you as a person and they see you as a a genuine person who's there as an authority figure but also loves them almost in a fatherly kind of love Mm. where you will use discipline to guide them but at the same time you're not there to be a tyrant over their world and you and I like I would love to get your thoughts on that but that balance between tyranny yeah. and then a fatherly love it's it's a tough one to to play yeah. but you were someone that very obviously was loved by all of the kids at school like if you saw this guy's presents that he received at the end of the year Christmas coming around and he would just like get present after present from kids Uh, he did like have a younger cohort of gel Mm. class which tends to carry over from primary school I think but it was really cool to see like the amount of love you got from the kids yeah so what's your kind of thoughts on the tyrant versus I guess the relatable love teacher in some sense no that's humbling man thank you this has just come into my head now so like it it might not sound well polished as it comes out of my mouth takes a village to raise a child Mm. the concept of as like I am a father so the being an authoritarian and being loving is definitely like a a weird line to tread like even with my own yeah. daughter who's just two of being like no this is a rule I'm not compromising but yeah. then at the same time being loving like that is but with teaching I just thought about the fact that are we made not made to look better but are we more loved by students because we're in the minority where we actually listen to the students and do love them whereas 90% of the other teachers are just black and white authoritarian hammers. Mm. And so... I think 90% is probably... That's too high. You're right. Yeah, especially... I, I think it seems like that because our, our staff room was so isolated from the other staff members. Yeah, that's And so true. the ones that we do hear about are probably only the extreme cases. Mm. But, yeah, I totally agree. That's a, Yeah, that's true. 90% is definitely an exaggeration. But I guess... While you and I would 
exhibit authority, we almost didn't have to because we didn't have to play both far, like father roles mm. because the tyranny father role was done so poorly by a lot of other teachers as soon as you would give any love to a student they would instantly fall in line yes the majority of the time and you had that great relationship because you could enforce authority without being a tyrant yeah and because that was rare for the kid or yeah. less common for the kid to see you just naturally had less issues yeah because they weren't like teenagers are rebellious by nature and if you're not being an authoritarian you don't have the rebellion mm. and because they were getting so much of that from other staff members when your authority is your presence and you're loving to the student why would they rebel against that because they finally almost feel like they have someone on their side yeah and so you obviously still have, like, the instances where it comes up, but you don't necessarily have to be the tyrant because... Other people are doing it. Other people are doing it. But, like, because they're doing it poorly mm. or in excess, yeah. you being a loving authoritarian of, like, look, here's the line, don't cross it or there's consequences, yeah. as opposed to being a hammer looking for a nail. Yeah like students naturally does that make sense yeah well in some sense in in retrospect to the perspective of the other teachers we seem like we're not that authoritative because they're so authoritative yeah, i wonder if that's delivery yeah, yeah. Well, so I, I'm try- I don't know what the difference is because i feel like you and i were very like we had clear boundaries like I would I would up kids for swearing in my class and yeah. a kid would swear and other kids in the class would say hey language mm-hmm. and it's almost like I've found that throughout my teaching career and especially as I gained confidence that it's like the kids would self regulate self regulate mm-hmm. almost like they know that they have a good thing going so they try and keep it going yeah. so you almost don't have to discipline the class a lot because the class disciplines themselves and I don't know if that's because you and I engage in conversation with the kids and we listen to the kids so we actually have a genuine relationship so they feel like they want to keep that going like they know they have a part to play in it like relationships are a give and take mm. no that's such an interesting thought like you, what you're describing is is like a culture that you've developed like you've literally grown your own culture with the kids and the culture now is ingrained in them so they will uphold the culture that you've built whereas like like a tyrant inevitably has to control the culture because yes. like it, it just is inevitable the people the people don't want to be there yes. right and so they will resist and you will always have to constantly put energy into it to keep the control of of their minds in some sense um whereas like if you if you've developed like this this culture that they've all bought into yeah you that it will enforce itself because they like being in it they like being within the group yeah. they're, they're loved within the group 
I was going to say, I think love is a pretty key word there because I know for some staff members that they're so black and white that they're enforcing the rules because they're the rules. Mm. Whereas if you're enforcing the rules out of love in the like, and I guess that's even like some of the rules at school where kids would complain and be like, yeah, I get it. That's a stupid rule. I hate that rule. But yeah it's the rule yeah and so you're like empathizing with them but at the same point not compromising and it's like out of love that's love like yeah in the sense of like i get it i have to do it too there's things i don't want to do but that's how life works and i think it's yeah i don't know it's so multifaceted it is i the, the other thing that came to mind while you're saying that was a lot of the time my kids will always constantly point out hypocrisies and you don't want to be caught out in in your own hypocrisy of it like it's it's probably better to be like like you just said then yeah that i think that that rule is hypocritic hypocritical it doesn't really quite make sense and when because they they acknowledge it they see it they're like this doesn't make sense in this setting so why is it applied here and you're like look (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you're making some really good points. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. You can't argue that. And, like, it, it, the tyrant just goes, like, hard down on them. And a lot of the time, the consequence doesn't meet the, what, like, the what, the level of, I guess, like, the rule in place doesn't equate to the consequence's magnitude. Hmm. And so the tyrant will just go a little bit too hard. And so you'll end up almost being punished fast too severely for whatever it is. They recognize that there's hypocrisy here and now you've just effectively turned everyone against you. Yes. Which is like a tough line to toe. And so that, that can be in any kind of workplace if you're a leader and you, you have to think about that. Um, am, am I going to assert myself in a way where the outcomes are going to get what I need done efficiently, but I'm also no longer going to be respected. And that's a tough balance to do because I I was talking to you about it towards the end of the term and we were, again, in a PD because we have all this personal development at the end of the term. And it's so interesting having these conversations too, because I feel like the personal development in some sense sinks in in a really cool way by reflecting on it the way we are right now. Um, And it might not have the absolute intended goal that they were maybe (laughs) aiming for, but in some sense it, it still makes our practice better. But a lot of teaching tools are now becoming online, which is awesome and it means again that equity is more accessible because so many more kids can now access content 24/7 it can also be tailored to their needs a bit more the problem is is as we keep going down and down and down and down that rabbit hole teachers are becoming far less resilient in their own practice because they no longer need to be able to go into their own toolkit and teach to the level that they may have let's say like even today like if we went back 20 years the amount of content a teacher had to know in order to just whiteboard a lesson out and just they have to know every little bit of the lesson off by heart whereas these days if you're very reliant on um, 
technology to assist you, you can actually already have everything just given to the kids prior to you being there. And that's what they're trying to kind of slowly shift towards as like a, a government overall is everything being given to the kids and then eventually the teacher will no longer be required other than the facilitator of giving the content to them to access. And so teachers are therefore downskilling because they don't practice their content all the time in front of the kids through using either a whiteboard or maybe a blackboard or um, even just like having open discussions about topics, right? Because you're not actually doing the research anymore to um, understand the lessons quite as much. You may have done it once, twice, but as efficiency goes up, resilience tends to always go down. The more efficient a process is, it ends up being fantastic, but it also exposes vulnerability. And vulnerability, like if something breaks down, let's say you don't have power for the day, yeah. what the hell do you do with the kids, right? And and I just see like I'm, I'm talking like 10, 20 years time, we're in the future where everything's being taught like virtually or you're a hologram in the class or it's just entirely like through content that can be sent out to the kids via email they jump on a link and then you've got a lesson about science grade 8 science physics today we're learning about forces and they just do the whole lesson independently the other thing is the kids are getting less resilient because most of the content is being taught individually there's no room for social cohesion to occur. There's no collaboration happening in those settings anymore. And so, as again, as you push for equity, you help more access. Yeah. But in some sense, you lose the adaptability of the kids because they no longer have the ability to actually teach themselves or understand how to teach themselves or investigate they just know how to go click search research they might even not even know how to do the step of research anymore because everything's just fed to them yeah yeah i yeah i completely agree with that i don't know how it stops now though like it feels like that was a crazy tangent (laughs) But I also weirdly was thinking about how it, like, relates all the way back to what you were saying about the different, like, uh, learning needs and disabilities and how there should be different schools or classrooms or environments for students based on their needs. And doing this equity approach eliminates that Mm. because everyone's getting all the same things and it's yeah the onus being taken off of the teacher and just being content just fed to kids there's no differentiation yeah and like you said teachers if teachers are just the disseminators of virtual information to students how are they supposed to tailor it to the needs of the students because they don't even know what the needs of the students are Mm. which then weirdly made me think about the relational teaching that we were talking about maybe you and I made more inroads with the kids because we actually spoke to the kids about who the kids are and their interests yeah and because we spent less time just giving them the disseminated information and then not engaging with them whereas when you actually engage with them like that's what teaching is yeah 
like the kids like when you know the kids and you can you don't even do it consciously so much of it's subconscious of like you can make it more understandable and relatable to the kids because you just know who they are and what they're interested in and that's differentiation right because you understand what their interests are you understand what their interests are not and then you can be like no this piece of content you can see it like this yeah and it's like oh yeah i can see how that relates to trains or whatever it is yeah whatever it is or like just giving them the freedom of like oh yeah you can look at this through the lens of marvel movies if you want like right about that like i don't care as long as you're like looking at like the overarching thing yeah i think the i was talking to one of the students at our school about how it seems like so many people who are in really high paying jobs Mm. you can't even describe what they do like even like i was talking to you about like what my dad does for work yeah it's like how do you learn to do that like you can't there's no university course there's no no trade Mm. like how do they even find out about these jobs yeah and it when you have like the the irony of going for an equitable approach of disseminating the same information virtually to all students the kids who are bored and are actually looking for things to do are going to become richer yeah because they're like well this is stupid and I don't want to do it and rather than just go play video games or like waste my time like I'm going to go and explore other things yes and you're going to end up like further fragmenting society where it's like the rich are going to keep getting richer and the smart are going to keep like finding these weird niches to fill that all the other masses are just going to fall into like the cookie cutter jobs or just end up on like welfare because who knows what the welfare state's going to look like in 20 years once like (laughs) automation and things happen and so it's like you're trying to be equitable but you're actually just like forcing yeah, inevitably, inevitably, you'll end up with with the disparity anyway. Like, you, yeah, you, you can't, can't get rid of it. You literally can't force equity. the 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 premise to it is so ridiculous. I write it. I write about it in my book a little bit because, and I make the relationship between work, health, and safety policy, and how that's constantly enforced. Right, and you need. In order for people to operate their jobs these days, you have to sign and acknowledge that you have considered all of the risks of everything you're about to do in the mo- like the craziest degree of detail simply because the employer or the governing body does not trust you as a human being to make your own tactful ethical choices at your job hmm. which is hilarious right which tells That's what they're paying you to do they're paying you to be a professional like it's so silly and it's kind of funny in some sense because it's like, well, in like, what is school doing if we can't teach the people how to just be morally and ethically sound as human beings and to make reasonably like safe choices? And so, like, you can't even stand on a chair anymore to put up a poster. Like, what, what are we talking about here? That's that's yeah. ridiculous. Like, oh, it's just a like. Yeah. <laughs> and so in or, like and the reason why that's a rule is because some old person stands on a chair and falls off it, right? And now because they hurt themselves to enforce equity, everyone can't stand on the chair. It's like I'm perfectly able to stand on the chair to get that job done. And so with a world full of like all humans are uniquely different. Mm. 
So you need an infinite amount of red tape to nerf the whole entire world to enforce equity, which in itself a proposition that is impossible to enforce. Which I just thought, like, ironically, like, we teach natural selection in science and we are trying to eliminate natural selection while teaching about how it got us to where we are. <laughs> yeah. Because if you nerf the whole world, then natural selection doesn't apply. It doesn't work, yeah. Because it's not survival of the fittest. Yeah. And if it's survival of everyone, then you almost have to be equitable. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just creating more people for the welfare state. Oh, that's that's so true. Yeah, we've totally like hijacked the whole survival of the fittest principle it's just about keeping as many people as possible just above the baseline mm. and it's effectively like comf- comfortable dying in some yeah, sense. For what, like for what purpose are we keeping people above the baseline yeah well like because we care and that, that that's what comes down to it is like we want to we the, the the idea is we care a lot about each other and so we don't want anyone struggling I've been having this thought recently and I keep thinking, is there a unique inverse relationship between how many people you have like that are super, super rich and how many people you also have that fall out the bottom end? Like, I wonder if the the percentage of people that are just crushing it versus the percentage of people that are not crushing it will always be the same in like a large scale society. Like you always, like if you have, like they're always inverse and then you Obviously, the middle class is called the middle class because it consists of the majority of people, right? That's where everyone, that's where everyone matters. Yes. The middle, the middle, the middle class people is what keeps this whole thing going. Um, and you can't have everyone rich, and you can't have everyone like you obviously can't have everyone poor unless something terrible goes on. And so the system is trying to enforce equity to ensure that more and more and more people fit into the middle class. But in my eyes, that is also an impossible pursuit because you'll always have... If you want to have a society that functions well, you have to allow people to succeed because if they don't have anything to work for, they won't They won't do it. And so that's why communism doesn't work because it always ends up corrupt because there's a whole heap of people that will abuse the system. And in the same way, there's always going to be a whole heap of people that will find a way to just ruin their own lives. It's... And it's unfortunate, and they've come probably from situations that were really poor before them, and that's why we care about it so much, because it sucks that they got a horrible, horrible roll of the dice. But it kind of comes down to the whole principle behind no one, literally no one can choose what they're born into. Mm. No one at all. But that means that it's on yourself to make the best of whatever you're born into. And that, that's privilege in itself. And you and I, which will kind of bring me into my next kind of questioning, because we've kind of touched on it a little bit, but I wanted to talk to you about fatherly love in some sense, um, because we've said this a gazillion times. The most privileged thing that a human being can have in their entire lives is two parents that love them. Yeah, yeah. and two parents who love each other. Yes, that's that's key as well, right? That's that is the utmost privilege. And if if you're going to be a kid that kind of has a healthy outlook on life, that seems to be very important. And but what's also interesting is the kids that come from a tough background and make it through almost always end up brilliant. 
and it's it's kind of that like if you can somehow play your cards despite what you're given the best way you possibly can it'll end up good yeah I completely agree and it's one of those ones like I can think of a particular student who we taught who has like parents separated Mm. but is still just absolutely crushing it and like I I said to that student I was like you're doing that in spite of your circumstances not because of your circumstances and yeah people want to talk about like what straight white male privilege the greatest privilege you can have on this earth is having two parents who love each other that doesn't guarantee you success but if you could choose your starting position in life you'd be mad not to choose that starting position yes oh 100% that's so true um the uh, like this is going to be a super super big jump oh well although i <laughs> I, I when i wrote this point down this morning i was like tentatively writing it down because it's a bit of a dangerous place just professionally to talk about in some sense so i probably won't go into it too much um but you and i were at a christmas mass and i just thought it was such an interesting thought of the relationship between joseph and mary the um mary gets pregnant with jesus mm-hmm. And I said to you, it weirdly seems like this is like could also be taken as an angle of like a pro-life scenario in the like a religious perspective. Like Joseph chooses to accept Mary for who she is. She's pregnant. Like to me, if I was transported back in time or if my wife came home pregnant, <laughs> I would be, like, asking some questions, hey. And the fact that he accepts her and loves her still is, like, it's kind of like, it's just, like, that in itself, to me, is just, like, the craziest powerful thing. Still loving someone unconditionally and it's a leap of faith he has to take. You remove, like, the idea of that she was conceived um, by uh, a miracle and oh he was conceived by a miracle and you think of it as like how was Joseph probably feeling when he heard that news it's just like that's a such a powerful thing a man Mm. chose to do right like a man owned up he took responsibility for a child that he was going to have yeah like even if it was it wasn't a miracle which obviously the story says it is, but if it wasn't a miracle, what a man Joseph must have been to be like, I'm raising this kid. Yeah. Like, that's so yeah. interesting. Yeah, it's also crazy. So, like, the context for that too is they weren't married at the time, so they were engaged, like, bet- mm. betrothed, I think, is, like, the word that, the like, Matthew uses. So, Mary visited by an angel who says, you will bear a son whose name will be Jesus conceived of the holy spirit she then tells joseph joseph so he's getting this second hand so initially he gets his second hand from <laughs> mary and the and the texts of the new testament say that he sought to divorce her which was even though they weren't married to end their engagement quietly yeah. so he still went to do it as nobly as he could like he was like mm-hmm. all right i'm done like you're pregnant that's yeah. I'm going to try and do it quietly so I don't bring shame to you. Like, he was still trying to be, like, do the right thing. And then the same angel who visits, who had visited Mary, visits Joseph and is like, no, what she's saying is right. And he goes, yeah, okay, cool, I'll, I'll stay, and changes his tune. And so I guess it's one of those ones, like, obviously, I'm a Christian, so I believe that it, that it was a miracle that this did happen, so... 
yeah, obviously he listens to the angel and and stays. But like you said, yeah, you could definitely take it as a as a pro life decision. And he, yeah, he bucked up. He, he really did. Yeah. I yeah. I like. I I almost find it humorous. Like I reckon there's a really good comedy bit in that. But yeah. <laughs> oh man, it is. It is like just a powerful kind of moment. And yeah, Joseph has got some balls. Um, I, but the uh, the extension of the thought I had while thinking about that was I find it interesting. I feel like today, and you, there would be data on this somewhere, but it'd be, probably be pretty tough to find. But I I was pondering on the thought of do people actually believe in miracles anymore? Like, how, what do you like? If I was to ask you, do you believe in miracles? Like today in today's age, what would you say to that? It's a cop out answer, but I would I would always respond to like any sort of uh, probing question like that. But what do you mean by miracles? So even in the mm. Bible, miracles are not like common throughout yeah. the Bible. Like there are definitely Jesus's life was full of miracles, and the early church in the like initial wave after Jesus died was full of miracles. Then there was Elijah in the Old Testament and Moses in the Old Testament where miracles were common throughout the book of, like, or through their lives. But there were hundreds of years gaps where no miracles happened in the Bible. Mm. So I would say when the Holy Spirit brings someone to Christ, that is a miracle. But as far as, like, do I think that water can be turned into wine and things like that no yeah that i would be my answer does that answer your question yeah no well it was kind of like a bit of a leading question as well because i was i was interested to see where you went with that because to me i think like a lot of christians probably would answer this and you kind of said that in some sense but a lot of micro miracles happen all the time but yes. it, it's your perspective of what the word means. Yes. And so, like, in my eyes, I'm like, well, like, even just you working with me for two years yeah. and us becoming friends was, like, a really cool miracle in some sense. And so then I believe in that 100%. And yeah. that's why I guess it's like you play that semantic game. Before you answer the question, it's like, <laughs> define your terms. Yeah. Say, like, as in, do I believe in miracles in that sense? Like, yeah, I would just call that the sovereignty of God. Yeah. So I would say 100% I believe in the sovereignty of God. But if someone's out here claiming they have the ability to heal people, I don't believe in that. Yeah. There'd be plenty of Christians, and there are literally tens of millions, hundreds of millions of Christians who do believe that people have like gifts like that. I don't buy that. Go to the children's hospital and start doing it would be like my rebuttal to that. You know what I mean? So. <laughs> It, it like it sounds harsh. <laughs> so but, true. Yeah, but that's why I'm like I, I I can empathize with like where your stance would be on that. So yes, I believe that miracles happen, but it depends on what you mean by miracle. Yeah, the scale's definitely very important. Like the magnitude of what how big a miracle can actually occur, and in some sense, it's also your perspective on if the thing is a big thing or not a big thing, right? Um, but like the impact you've had on my life is very large so in some sense that's a large miracle in some in, in some way um but but yeah i guess it was kind of like a, a bit of a leading misleading question i just wanted <laughs> to see where you'd go with it um 
No, cool. Uh, the other thing, which is kind of biblical in some sense, and we've spoken about this a few times, um, but you were the person that spurred me on to adopt um, fasting in my life more often. Um, I was kind of already doing it a little bit, but not so much. I I'd had plenty of knowledge on it. But the way in which you just in all facets, facets of your life bring upon discipline to everything you touch is so impressive. And fasting was one of the things you also took upon yourself and you were doing it before I even met you. And I watched you do it for the last two years and just transform from when I met you, like you definitely weren't overweight. You were in a healthy body range and um, you were well into fasting, but you had lost probably at that point somewhere between like 20 kilos or yeah, something. That, yeah. And then you went on and down to like a really, he looked good. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't say he was overweight at all, and then he probably lost another like eight kilos over mm. the next two years to the point now where he's walking around shredded all the time. And I was even like towards the end there, I was starting to think I was like, he's he's got to like probably tone this off a little bit because he's gonna <laughs> get to get to the point where it's like he's in borderline too too shredded. And you get you, but he he already like was having that conversation with me like fairly often about yeah i think i'm happy at a maintenance level now and he recognized that in himself um but that journey like what got you onto fasting how did you like what what, what was the thing that was just like yep i'm doing this because it's a long hold thing it takes mm. a, a, a certain level of understanding of delayed gratification to even pull it off yeah. which is a powerful skill in itself um yeah so what's what's your thoughts on that uh started fasting the first time I ever heard the words intermittent fasting were out of the mouths of the Hodge twins yes great yeah. great YouTube channel great YouTube channel and that must have been close to a decade ago yeah and for me I was just like a skinny kid in high school went to the gym and just started eating crazy amounts of food to try and put on mass <laughs> yeah. to try and trick myself into thinking it was all lean lean muscle that I had gained <laughs> when, I, when I knew it wasn't um, and then it was like the whole like bulk and cut like post ziz gym phase <laughs> and the thing that I always hated with dieting was just eating small meals yes I hated the like concept of every time I ate I was still hungry when I finished yeah. and so for me initially fasting was like a good way of I can still eat like two solid sized meals a day and be in a calorie deficit yeah so that was probably like the initial motivation and yeah I think I dropped yeah I dropped about 20 kilos um maybe just yeah just under 20 kilos like you said and then over the past two years um like dropped down like a fair bit to um the low body fat percentage to try and be shredded I think the having having kids made a difference in that I was time poor mm -hmm. so I couldn't spend heaps of time going to the gym and trying to like constantly hit hypertrophy workouts and and put on mass and I just never been shredded before and I think it was just one of those goals of I finally got it through my head that this wasn't going to be something I could do in a month and it was yeah. just going to be like a like a, a slow burn and I think it sounds stupid 
but the day that I first saw like the faintest look of like a vein on my ab, I was like, oh, <laughs> I think I want to see where this can go. Yeah. And then from there, I think, and also I never stepped on scales for it. It was all mirror testing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I actually, the other day I like redid like what I'm going to do for workout plan and try yeah. and like definitely not lose more body fat percentage and see like what I can do from there but I think yeah being time poor was like a big reason and there's one dude I can particularly think of at work who was like oh now you have a second kid you're gonna get fat and I was like (laughs) motivation yeah I was like oh really like watch I'll do the opposite then like just to spite you like (laughs) and it's good juice yeah and it always makes me mad when people are like ah there's no way I could do that and it's just trying to I guess almost be there like well I did it what's your excuse like and I think discipline is just such an important thing to have in life there's so few things that you can control so whenever you have the ability to exercise discipline Mm. I don't know it feels healthy it feels rewarding and it also sometimes helps you feel less hypocritical as a teacher Yeah. because when you become an adult there's so few areas that like you don't have to be disciplined yeah really you can do what you want when you want but we constantly like tell kids like do this do this like and we discipline kids or like try and get them to be disciplined but then we never are so I think it was that helped as well yeah it's definitely especially for being a role model to young men like I, I even notice, like boys look up to me so much more because I keep myself in really good physical 100%. shape, and like they want to be like me. Like I, I actually, my little saying about like raising raising people is just like monkey see, monkey do. Monkey yeah. wants to be like you, mm. right? And so like whatever you do, like you should be practicing what you preach. We're both HPE teachers, and so it, it is important to walk the talk. I the thing with fasting which I've recently found um I know we're we're running short on time here but I had this mentality that I needed a certain amount of food in me before I could exercise or have a certain amount of energy to put out right yeah. and so for the last 3 weeks now moving into the 4th week I've pushed my fasting to effectively what you were doing. Um so now I'm eating my meal almost every day, first meal of the day at 1. Yeah. Um and I've done some absolutely insane workouts this holidays. And I used to have this mentality that I wouldn't be able to work out like that if I hadn't have eaten a meal. And it's so wrong. Yeah. It's so wrong. You have plenty of energy in you it's it you don't need to be extremely fueled to do a hard workout like that's just like a rhetoric that's preached but actually in practice doesn't really apply at all and if anything you have if provided i also you have to drink lots of water that's key like if you're not drinking lots of water you will you will get grumpy and you'll 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 feel just agitated the grunt the water will help you just kind of feel satiated and so anytime you kind of have that little bit of hunger you just drink some more water you'll find it goes away straight away um but yeah i can't really remember what i was going to water's key to keep keep you going but you yeah you can definitely work out super hard and be faster sorry the mental clarity thing and you get heaps of mental clarity when you're hungry oddly you like 
And I don't. I I personally think it's probably something to do with the fact that when you're hungry, you tend to sharpen your clarity because if we were back being cave people you would have to go source a meal when you're hungry and in order to catch a meal you have to be quite switched on and so you actually get this like kind of quick wit about you when being fasted add coffee to that (laughs) your cognition just like it slaps you're just like firing on all cylinders Um, And so, yeah, there's so many cool benefits to that. And your story in regards to fasting is is awesome. I also like I'm kind of jealous that you, in some sense, that you were fat at one point because it gives you so much validity when you speak about it, whereas I've just always been super fit. And in some sense, I can't relate to people being overweight. Mm. And it doesn't give when I make the statements about how good and how well fasting works and then you add all the little one percenters on top of that it's a like it you can transform yourself into an absolute savage quite quite quickly like obviously quickly is perspective right but you probably did that over three years yeah well I think the initial like weight I, I dropped 20 kilos in probably six months (laughs) <laughs> that's insane yeah initially yeah. and then I just sort of like eased off a little bit and then the slow burn of probably nine months to drop yeah. like that last sort of like eight kilos and I think like my philosophy was like man like why would you want this to last any longer than it has to yeah so just like be disciplined get it done to, to give you an idea um, and then I'll wrap this up Luke walks around at roughly 65 to 67 kilos and he had an extra 25 kilograms of just mass slapped on around him which is just insane to fathom like he literally looks so different you see his driver's license photo and you you laugh it's just like it's like whoa like that's like yeah it makes me oddly want to do something super hard like that just to uh say I can do it but I'm not going to but it is it is cool um, we are literally running out of time I, I had a couple more topics to discuss but I'm sure we'll do this again yeah. um, so I just want to thank you for having this conversation with me it was really fun and looking forward to more yeah bro it's been awesome man I, I've loved it love you thanks for chatting it's been good love you too let's get it <laughs>